Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a small portion of a lecture that John O'Hearn recently delivered to our Theopolis Fellows during Epiphany term. We graduated 13 Fellows a couple of weeks ago, and every morning John lectured on music. And this particular bit is on why and how music moves us. And speaking of John O'Hearn, we hope that you have seen our recent announcement for the Todayum Music Fellows program. We are very excited about this new fellowship in church music, which aims to equip pastors and church musicians to implement our Theopolitan vision of liturgy and music in your own local context. We aim to give musicians a reason why that they can bring back to their local churches. The Todayum Fellows program launches this summer in the month of July, and I have a link down there in the show notes for you that will give you all the information that you need. And even sooner, in the month of March, John O'Hearn is going to teach a intensive course for us entitled Music and Life. The problems that plague church music do not plague the church alone. These issues, such as fighting over musical style or a lack of enthusiasm, or just not enough well-composed new music, all have their source in much larger cultural trends which need to be addressed and understood. And in this class, we're going to look at the doctrine of music. We'll look at music in social and political and spiritual life before 1600. And we'll also look at the role of various technologies in shaping worship music for good or ill. So for more information about that course coming up in the month of March, March 11th through 15th, there's a link down there in the show notes. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is John Ahern discussing why music moves us. I'm just gesturing to this now, and I'll, I'll discuss it in, in, in full a bit later. I would say that there wasn't really art music before then. Um, so I think, uh, and, and this is, again, something that a lot of people wouldn't agree with me on, but I think it's important to stress it, because um, I think it's related to the sort of woes that we experience now. Art music is a movement which was started exactly so as to rest from the church, uh, to take from the church the role of, of defining that which was beautiful. So, I, I mean, in, in really brief uh, form, in 1600, there were these guys in, in Florence in, at the end of the Renaissance, uh, sort of humanistic guys, who, who said, look, uh, church music is so terrible, we hate it. Um, really, uh, church music doesn't really understand how to create really good music. We want music that was more like um, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides in ancient Greece, uh, the classical model. Um, and so they created this thing called opera, and out of opera came symphony and various other things. But uh, so they, they created opera, um, Monteverdi would be like the name to think of there. And, but what they were doing was precisely saying, well, the church has squandered the, the role of sort of defining that which is beautiful in music. So we're going we're gonna to take that and we're, we're going to sort of create our own world in which uh, in which we do that. And that's, that's fine, I suppose, but it, it was uh, in many ways a movement that was uh, erected as a substitute for church. And I think that there are many respects in which the classical concert hall, even today, is a kind of a mimicry of a liturgical act. 
I, I think they're, they're really on the nose indications earlier. I think they know exactly what they're doing, at least in, in the floor, what we call the Florentine Camerata in, in Italy. I think that, has, that, that early moment, it really flourishes in Italy, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it has to do with the Catholic Church um, and the ways in which I think the Catholic Church really mishandled counter-reformation musically. Uh, it, it doesn't catch on in Germany and England nearly as quickly. And in Germany and England, for 150 years, there's huge resistance to the classical model, which is why I, I wouldn't consider Bach to be a classical composer, because even though he's after this, uh, after 1600, um, he's still living in a Germany in which there's not really opera to speak of. Handle the re he wanted to compose opera, so he went to Italy and then to England, uh, but they didn't really compose a lot of opera um, in, in, in Germany, at least in the parts of Germany that Bach was in. And... Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm getting too, too granular. But yeah, so I think that it happens early on that there is that simulacrum of, of worship, I think. But it doesn't immediately catch on in all places near, in part because I think Protestants do a good job in the early years of creating church music, which is interesting in, in, a, in a, powerful, a powerful force. Yeah. And I don't even feel so super strongly that uh, church music has to be the best of all the music, but more that we have our own priorities, right? We, we have our priorities that are determined uh, doctrinally, biblically, and it will very likely be the case that aesthetic priorities that we import from other traditions, outside traditions, including art, music, classical music, are not going to be relevant or helpful in a liturgical context. So we should just sort of uh, temporarily set them aside and then and once we have a clear idea of what our aesthetic goals are, we can go back and uh, plunder the Egyptians uh, later on in the process. Let's talk about this last chart, which is in some ways uh, the most uh, complex. So the question that motivates this particular chart would be, wh why is music so effective, uh, emotionally effective particularly? This tends to be something which you may have noticed when you discuss worship and worship music with people, there's something about it that runs emotionally hot a lot of times. Maybe not as much anymore. I feel like when I was younger, people were more willing to sort of get into it uh, than they are nowadays on certain things. Uh, but, but you may have noticed that, that um, for some reason, music really activates the emotions. And when we feel like our music is being threatened uh, by somebody's remarks, you know, the, the emotions kick in. Uh, this is, this is a, a feature, not a bug, of music, right? Music is a very affective thing. Uh, it's a very emotional thing. And so I want to ask the question, why and, and how, and how does that work? One way to think about this is, is the way that the, uh, the ancients, particularly the ancient Greeks, thought about this, but, you know, the, the church as well throughout many centuries has thought about it this way, uh, that music is uh, something which sort of touches all three parts of the soul. So in the, in the ancient world, the thought was you, your soul has three parts, a mind, a, a chest, and a stomach. Right. You may have read uh, Abolition of Man. It's a very good summary of this whole idea by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the, the, the mind, the head, the chest, the stomach. So the head is, is the mind, the intellect, the reason of a person. Uh, the chest, well, let's get the chest. The stomach is the desires, the passions, hunger, concupiscence, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, and then the chest is something we don't necessarily have a ready 
term for in modernity, but sentiment, magnanimity, um, affections with a capital A. Uh, what's another term that people use? Courage, yeah, thumos in Greek. Uh, spiritedness, I think, is how Alan, Alan Bloom translates it. And the idea here is that that's like a, a connective tissue between the mind and the, and the, the desires. That it's, uh, in Plato's Republic, he says, well, the mind is like the, the rulers and the stomach is like all the people who make money. They love money. They love earthly things. And then the chest is like the, the cops, the police. They sort of enforce what the mind is saying on everybody, the guardians, uh, auxiliaries. But it's a, it's a beautiful idea in the sense that, that actually your, your chest is, maybe a way to put it would be the, the moral emotions that you have. Uh, so if you, uh, for instance, if you see somebody bullying somebody else, uh, you have this thing that wells up in you of indignation. Right? And we would call that just an emotion and move on. But for the ancients, that's not an emotion in the same sense that like you feel lust or hunger or anything like that. that because you know those aren't really emotions either. Those are desires. When you feel uh, a sense of moral indignation, that's a different thing altogether from a passion. That's something in you that was created to have a sort of instinctive response toward reason. So you're in, it's your in, intuitions guided by reason, guided toward reason. So anyways, what does all this have to do with music? Well, the ancient idea was that music is in, in a way like a magnet for your soul, okay? And so, and you're like a block of... Of, of steel or whatever. And when, you, when the magnet's up here, everything is, whoop, you know, all the molecules are suddenly oriented up toward the magnet. And so your, your mind is on top, your reason is guiding you, and your, your chest is guiding your desire, and your desire is where it should be, in control, on the bottom. But music is a magnet that can go under too. And suddenly, whoop, all the molecules are oriented the wrong direction. And so your desire is now sort of in charge of your chest, and your chest tells your mind what to do, and you rationalize evil. Uh, your desires are, are what's guiding you rather than your reason. Uh, now, you can, you can uh, intervene in that model and say that's not a good model of the soul or, or whatever, but I think that there is some truth to that, that music has this, um, has this power to sort of orient your soul one direction or another, and it doesn't just talk to one part of you. Uh, music delights the mind as much as it delights the, the, uh, the desires. But exactly how it um, delights you and motivates you is, is a difficult question. Uh, another way of thinking about this, but a similar thing, Plato says, interestingly, that this is why musical innovation is so dangerous. Um, he says in his Republic, he says, I want there to be lots of musical education for all of my aristocrats, but, they, but no innovation. Nobody is allowed to introduce any new music, any new musical modes. He says, and this is a quote, when the musical modes change, the foundation of, the, of political society is destroyed, it's undone. When the musical modes change, the society of the political, uh, the foundations of political society are, are destroyed. Um, and why does he say that? Well, because, you know, music is this magnet, right? And his whole society is like a soul. And if, if suddenly the music changes, then, then desires will run rampant and reason will not 
will not guide things. Thumos will not guide things. And I, th I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, but in quite another realm, Adorno, Theodore Adorno, if you know that name, uh, you probably might have heard that name if you're interested in these debates about critical theory. Theodore Adorno was one of the uh, founders of critical theory back in the early 20th century, um, part of the Frankfurt School, along with Walter Benjamin and some others. Um, and Adorno was, amongst other things, a musicologist. Yay, musicology. Uh, Adorno, he's a very interesting guy. Um, obviously, you know, yeah, well, I won't say any more about that. He's kind of unintelligible uh, when you read him. If you're ever interested in reading him, he's very difficult to understand. But he wrote one really phenomenal essay, which I can recommend. I think it was 1935, called On Jazz. Um, and in this essay, he makes the case that um, jazz is deleterious to society. It's terrible for society. But he has a very interesting way of arguing for it, and it has to do with this diagram here, I promise. He has the, this idea that what, what makes jazz bad for society? Um, he says, jazz has this, well, let me back up. Theodore Adorno, um, he's the beginnings of what's called cultural Marxism. Uh, and cultural Marxism was uh, a movement that said, well, Marx obviously was wrong. He predicted that capitalism would end by the end of the 19th century. It didn't. So clearly, Marx, we need to revise him a bit. Uh, but Marx was very good at critiquing culture. Um, he's very good at understanding, uh, you know, how the sort of material conditions of reality come about. So we can use him as a guiding lens to look at, at culture. Um, so that's sort of what Adorno does. He doesn't necessarily have a political orientation like a Marxist. Uh, he's actually really mainly scared of totalitarianism, which he sees the big enemy. Anyways, so uh, he says jazz, look at jazz. Jazz has this um, surface level of rebellion, syncopation. Right? You know what syncopation is? Uh, sync if you think about a normal melody, a normal melody perfectly coincides with its meter. So Mary had a little lamb. The notes there all fit within the meter. Whereas if I sang, Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, right? That suddenly doesn't coincide with its meter. That's syncopation. So that jazz uses lots of syncopation. It uses lots of subtle forms of, of dissonance uh, where, you know, like a, a blue note, uh, I can play it on the piano. Whereas a normal scale goes like this, a blues scale does the wrong notes, right? So you're going to take that scale and just slightly tweak it so that you hit these kind of in-between notes. So he says that's, that's, that's great, but it's, it's all on the surface. It's all the melody. But look underneath at the harmony. Look underneath at the form. Look underneath at the metrical structure. What is it? It's so boring. It's old classical music, but it's, it's, it's worse than old classical music because it's, it's actually the most banal form of the, the old classical music. It's, it's underneath, underneath all that kind of surface of, of transgressiveness and rebellion. Underneath, it's something that's more conservative and traditionalist than Haydn would ever be and Mozart would ever be. They would be embarrassed to be so banal. So underneath jazz, is this fundamentally conservative, he means as it a bad word, a conservative kind of recalcitrant banality. 
And he says that this is what's so dangerous. And he's right on the money about this. He says, when people listen to jazz, that surface level of syncopation in the melody makes people feel as if they have expressed their rebellion. Like, they've, they sort of stuck it to the man. Yeah, totalitarianism. I like jazz. Um, and, and, uh, but underneath, what is it? They've just simply acquiesced to the, the existing regime. And so the impulse they have to uh, combat that regime is sort of wicked up and taken away. And so now they're perfectly calm members of society. And by the way, this is totally true. I don't know if you know, like, the typical person who likes jazz is like a, sorry for saying it, is like a, a snotty rich liberal who's like, yes, I voted for Obama. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a rebel. And from, from somebody like Adorno's perspective, um, who is like pretty far to the left, that's, that's the worst possible thing. It's like the, the snotty rich Obama voter who, who isn't radical enough. They think they've done this sort of act uh, that shows that they've stuck it to the man, but really they're just fundamentally supporting the underlying regime. Now, I don't agree with a lot of what I'm explaining to you, but I think that there's a very keen insight into the way music works. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Good question. So, like, um, so the syncopation and the blues scale, that sort of thing. Underneath 12-bar uh, blues, 12-bar blues is this. that's actually just sort of a slightly deformed classical music. Okay, so uh, underneath, when you sort of peel back the, the layers of the music, what you have is, is something, yeah. I mean, I don't know um, if his target is capitalism as such, ca totalitarianism, you know, all that, yeah. But there's something really insightful, and actually this is, in an odd way, the inverse image of Plato, right? Plato says, I don't want innovation. I like the conservative. I don't want anyone to introduce newness into it because it will upset my political system that's perfect. And Adorno says, guys, we need to upset the political system, but you're giving into the political system by not properly changing the musical modes. Right, so, so he wants the musical modes to change, but he, he and Plato both do assume that when the musical modes change, all of society is, is undone. But for one of them, that's a good thing, and for the other, that's a bad thing. Okay, so if you look at this, um, this chart here, uh, what I am attempting to communicate here is that that which makes music work on you, very likely that which you are not aware of. So just like in Adorno with jazz, everybody's hearing that surface level of transgressiveness but people are not hearing the structure underneath. But it's the structure underneath which really works on you. Um, and so I'll make a kind of radical claim. I'll say that the reason that you like all of your favorite music, the music that you like, your favorite bands, your favorite songs, favorite albums, whatever, um, the reasons that you like those things are very likely not the things that you're hearing consciously. And so this chart will sort of show you, okay, as it's more audible, I don't know why I said less hearable, more hearable. I could have just used the word audible. Uh, it did not occur to me, however, to do that. Um, so I, I invented the word hearable and put it in quotes. Um, 
uh, so yeah, the, the more audible it is, the less actually it emotionally affects you. But the less audible, the less consciously aware you are of hearing it, uh, the more emotionally effective it is. Um, so you can sort of go deep into the, into the music. So if you strain your head or turn your text around. So at the top is like the meaning of the text. That's what most of us sort of first hear when we listen to music is the text, the meaning of the text. Uh, then the, the melody, obviously, the tune. Uh, and then uh, what I would call the prosody, and that is like the poetry of the text. You know, uh, it's the text's meter, the, the consonants of the text, the rhyme of the text. Um, we are aware of that, and that can be what, uh, what we listen for. If, by the way, if you like certain genres more than others, you'll like certain of these parameters more than others. These are all parameters of the music. And certain genres really focus on certain parameters. So, for instance, the meaning of the text, I think of like country music, where to have to debase yourself by listening to country music. You, you basically are just ignoring all the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know I just lost my whole audience here. Uh, um, you have to ignore all the other parameters, which are quite ugly. Uh, and you just pay attention to the, the meaning of the text, which is heartfelt, warm, sentimental. It really hits you here. I know I'm really upsetting you all. Country music is fine, I'm kidding. But uh, anyways, so certain of the, whereas like uh, hip hop, uh, if you're really into like, uh, Nas and uh, Tupac and old school, like, or the internal rhyme schemes of Eminem or something like If you're one of those people, you really like this, the prosody meter consonants of the text parameter of the music. That's what really appeals to you. Whereas uh, the tune is almost non-existent right, in, in many of those situations. Uh, okay, so you've got the meaning of the text, the tune, the prosody of the text, uh, and you're noticing as less and less consciously each of these parameters as we go deeper into the structure of the music. So the synchronic harmony, by which we mean just the harmony at any given moment. So if you listen to a, a, a disco song and you're like, oh, I love that chord. That's such a, such a great chord. It really gets me right here. That's the synchronic harmony, right? When you notice this, this one chord or one moment that really affects you. I, that's my weak spot in terms of music. Whenever there's that one little chord, uh, it really gets me. Um, so that's the synchronic harmony. You may not consciously notice that the first few times you hear the song. You may just sort of feel a certain vibe when you, when you hear the song. And then later on, as you listen to it more, you notice, oh, that one little note there is just so well placed. Then there's um, the orchestration or the texture of the, of the music. I probably should have put this higher. But uh, so this would be what instruments the music uses. Uh, or synthesize instruments the music uses, um, what, the, yeah, what the timbre of the music is. Many differences in genre that, that we think of, like the difference between this genre and that genre, um, are in fact illusory. It's all the same genre in many ways. Uh, and all that they're swapping out is the orchestration or the texture. So um, I think somebody sent me one time they had like taken uh, um, some death metal song, and you know you take out the the guy screaming, and you 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 change the guitar from overdrive or distortion to just a normal kind of mellow guitar thing, and you maybe make take the same notes and put them on a synthesizer, and you take out the drum track, and you've got ambient music, and you're like, ah, oh, it's so relaxing. I listen to this whenever I'm stressed. It's, it's like the same thing, 
but we've sort of swapped out some of the details of orchestration. Um, so, and uh, to apply this to church music, right, a lot of people, all that matters to them about church music is your choice of orchestration. Do you use drums? Do you use piano or guitar? That is, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge consideration, actually. And that should not be most of what we focus on. But just be aware that that is a feature that, that's there in the background. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right, which is, it's a subtle thing. You may not notice on the first couple listens. But as you get used to one way of doing it, you prefer that or, or whatever it is. Okay, yes, exactly. So mode uh, or diachronic harmony. So this is like um, the, the key of the piece in a way. But you may notice um, that certain music has an, a mood that you immediately get from the key of it. So if you, uh, if you like me, in, your, in the uh, silly days of your youth, liked Coldplay, have you ever noticed like Coldplay, they get these weird moods that are kind of in between major and minor. And they kind of hit you right here. That's the, that's the mode or the uh, diachronic harmony of the piece. And then there's harmonic rhythm. I don't need to get into this, but that's like the, the rate at which the rhythm goes. Then you get really abstract ideas in music, uh, which almost no one talks about. And probably most people are not even consciously aware of when they're doing music. Um, hypermeter and periodicity. This is like how often does a bit of music repeat itself? Like every song, music repeats itself. You know, every popular song, every hymn, every symphony, any kind of music, there are always bits of the music that come back and repeat themselves. So at what rate do they repeat themselves and why do they repeat themselves when they do repeat themselves? This matters immensely to how you perceive the music and how you feel about the music. Um, it affects your mood so much and yet you are extremely unaware of it. And so that's why I think it's very important to um, have some level of musical education so that you're sort of aware of it. It doesn't detract from your enjoyment of it at all to be aware of it. It just, it makes you, let's say, more in, in conscious control of, of what's happening. Uh, and then structure and form. Um, we'll talk more about this, but form just being the disposition of the parts related to the whole. That's the most abstract level. But I would say it's the level at which most of the feels of music come, is the form that the music takes on. Um, does that make sense? Uh, the form of, of a pop song is verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, times three if you really want to amp up the, 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 the emotion. And then chorus with three exclamation points and then, you know, tag. So if you've ever been to a church where you, 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 get, you do this, you know, you do the verse, you do your worship song, and you get to the bridge, and they're like, um, and if our God is for us, then who can ever... And then the drum comes back in on the chorus, and everybody's going crazy and raising their hands. They always raise their hands right there, precisely because of this musical format. You could, like, do an ethnographic study of uh, worshipers in a worship song setting, and you discover that something like... 83% of all people who raise their hands do it right here. Um, that's a, a great p-value there if you want a good study. Um, so, and then your tag at the very end, if you've ever been to a worship service and, you're, and you get to the end of the song and you're like, uh-oh, do I repeat the last line or do I not repeat the last line? You know what I mean? Like, um, uh, and worship his holy name. 
and worship his holy name. And worship, and you're like, you never know if they're going to do one more or if they're not going to do it at all, and then it feels awkward if they don't do it. Um, that's the tack. And the re, <laughs> the, the drag. I like that. Um, so, and the reason we have these expectations orally in our, he, in our ears from listening to it on Spotify or whatever, and we know, um, even before the song begins, that this is, this is the format we expect. And it's very intuitive within us, and we don't know why or how, but we just know that when we get here, we're like, oh, something that doesn't feel right if they don't do it, and yet I'm not sure if I should do it. Um, another example would be uh, symphony. Sonata form, if you know what sonata form is. Sadly, we don't have time to talk about it too much. But sonata form, um, pretty much every piece of classical music, uh, okay, many pieces of classical music uh, have this format where you have something called the exposition, you don't have to write this down, exposition, uh, and then it goes to something called the development, and then it goes to something called the recapitulation, and it turns out that, that, that if you were to map out the chord progression of this piece, it begins in the key of the one, the key of whatever key it's in, G major, E flat major, then it goes to a different key that's a fifth away, uh, and that it might go to a different key that's a fifth away over, very slowly over the course of three minutes, five minutes, but it gives you psychologically this very strange feeling of unease, uh, a feeling of what we would call structural dissonance, that somehow this section of the music is not satisfying because I have not ended the section in the same key that I started it. And so this section of the music feels uh, unfinished, incomplete, uh, because I've moved to a different key. It's a related key, uh, but it's a different key. Then we go to this section, the development section, which is in many different keys, and, I, and it heightens my feeling of unease. I don't know where I am, and I feel like I am far from home, and I'm lost. And then I get back to this thing that's the recapitulation, which is the same thing that I heard before, but the composer, as it were, fixes the mistake. It manages to end the piece in the same key. And now, now I feel like we've done that again, but it worked this time and I didn't get back into that same rut and it's conclusive and satisfying. And, and that, uh, once you get familiar with the, that form, right, the first time you hear it, it's very abstract and you can't quite follow it. But if you're really into classical music, you get used to this form and you can hear it in any new piece of classical music, you immediately know where you are in the form and it really works on you and gives you that sense of deep satisfaction. So that's what I mean by form instruction. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.